Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Lauren Collins. She is the author of When in French, Love in a Second Language. It's just out from Penguin Press. And it's really interesting for a lot of different reasons. Uh, the memoir is really sort of the tip of the iceberg about what Lauren has to say, and we will get all into that in the next half hour or so. Lauren, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, Ron. Thank you. So, as I said, memoir is sort of at the core of your story, but there's a lot more going on that we'll unpack. But let's start with the very beginning, which is about love in a second language, specifically your love and, and your marriage. I moved to London in 2010. I'd been living in New York for about eight years, and I'd had the same job, which I loved. But, you know, same job, same city, had kind of gone through a gruesome breakup, was approaching 30, and I kind of felt my life was stagnating a little bit. So I moved to London, basically choosing the city strictly on the criterion that people spoke English. Three weeks after I moved there, I went to a party, and I walked in the room, and I saw a person, and I started talking to him. And it turned out he was a French man named Olivier, probably the first French person I'd maybe ever talked to at that point. Anyway, to make a long story short, we fell in love and got married and moved to Francophone um, Switzerland and now to Paris. And I very probably uh, learned a second language at 33, 34, having never expected to do so. When you mentioned that you had moved to London specifically because mm -hmm. you know, it was a place where you could still speak English... You know, you talk a little bit in the book about how even so, you know, growing up in North Carolina, as you did, you're very aware of the different types of you know, language as a form of as a marker of identity. And so you you write about the distinctions between like North Carolina English mm. and New York English and, and British English. And like, I mean, we're, you know, you're all speaking the same language, but there are different sorts of like, I don't know if codes is necessarily the right word. Or different registers. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a solidly monoglot culture, I think it's very fair to say. As I write in the book, I knew one person my whole life who spoke a foreign language, um, a Korean immigrant to the town I lived in. I didn't have a passport until I was 19. Yet, yeah, I was interested in these different kind of dialects, really, within English. I mean, my parents came from the North. They moved to North Carolina, and they spoke very differently from the people I grew up around. I endured, you know, all this teasing for the way, for instance, my mother said um, the word tournament. We pronounced it tournament where I was from. And, of course, being North Carolina, we pronounced that word a lot in March. But uh, my mother said tournament. And that was apparently considered just a profoundly Yankee way to say that. And so very early, yeah, I did have this kind of sensitivity to the way that people invest their identities in language. And then when I moved to the UK, I mean, I tell people that British English was kind of my gateway language. I did feel like, you know, to a certain extent, I was having to learn a new language and I loved it. I mean, I, I reveled in being able to go into a place, you know, still speak my own language. It's not like the bar was that it wasn't nearly as painful as my entry into French ultimately would be. But um, yeah, I got all these amazing things out of it. I mean, I really felt like it invigorated my relationship to English, just going into this kind of new strain of it. And as you mentioned, your your entry into French was excruciatingly painful, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, the opening scenes uh, of the book, I mean, you are... The opening scenes are very much a dystopian yeah. <laughs> expat memoir. Yeah, I mean, you're not quite mute, but for all practical purposes, you might as well be in French. Right. I mean, so we moved to Geneva 
Yeah, and I had no French. I mean, I had taken a little bit of high school Spanish and emerged like many people do who take high school Spanish with a grasp of like gracias and hola and crucially habla inglés. I mean, that was about as far as it went. And so suddenly I find myself living in this country where I don't speak the language at all. And, you know, I had been living abroad already very happily for three years. So it wasn't the culture shock that devastated me so much. It really was the linguistic shock. You know, I already had a test case of like, if I moved, am I sad because I moved to another country? No, because I moved to England and was very happy. But am I sad because I've moved to another language and I can't communicate? Very much so. And it was also a case, too, that, I mean, your husband, Olivier, is, is French, of course. And so, you know, there's that sense in which you felt cut off from a huge chunk of, of him. And, and, and in terms of, like, trying to form a life together, when you're that cut off from, like, a huge part of somebody's, you know, character or personality yeah. or identity, it's, it's, it's hard. It was really hard. I mean, we would have these, we would just, you know, something would happen. We'd have some kind of conversation or conflict. And we would arrive at these linguistic impasses where we were just like saying the same thing over and over again and couldn't break through to the meaning. And like one example of that, you know, coming from this kind of American school of conflict resolution, what I'd always been taught is that you want to use the personal pronoun. You want to take it upon yourself and say, I want this. I need this. Rather than saying, you always do this or you always do that. So I would, I would come in with my very well-intentioned I want you to do this, or I need more something or other. And Olivier took that as just evidence of raging narcissism on my part, and that I was trying to tell him what to do. In his language, that was like a very aggressive, self-centered way to try to have a conversation. And I didn't realize that until much, much later when I had actually, when I came to speak French and to understand his language better. So, yeah, we found ourselves just reaching these dead ends. You know, Olivier spoke and speaks great English, but there was only so far we could go when half of the equation was just invisible to me. Yeah, the example you just mentioned raises a great point, which is that it's not just a vocabulary issue. It's about ways of thinking. It's deep structure, yeah. really. Yeah, and to let people know, you know, I had said that this is more than a memoir, and specifically, you really get into a lot of, let's call it linguistic mm -hmm. theory, uh, a lot of really interesting information about languages and the way that they're used in society. And one of the avenues that you, you go down is um, the Saber-Whorf hypothesis, which, you know, I'll, I'll just fill this in quickly. Basically, language determines thought. Right. Um, you know, that's the, the very reductive version of that. And in a way, when you are not just cut off from under, I mean, you can learn words, but, you know, when you're cut off from how a, another person actually views the world, that's a huge gap. Right. I mean, so, so the, yeah, the Whorf hypothesis, you capitulated it perfectly, that language influences thought. It was fashionable and then it was really unfashionable and almost taboo for many, many years, particularly in the heyday of, you know, when Chomsky came in and said, um, human languages are really so similar structurally that if a Martian came to Earth and heard them all, they would appear as nothing more than dialects. They're all the same thing, was Chomsky's um, point. One of the things that I got into, I mean, I just became so interested. I took on this new language and I thought, why has this changed me so much? And I wanted to know, you know, kind of on a 
more substantive level what was happening. So I started reading. Anyway, there are all these um, neo-Warfian, they call themselves scientists, who are now reviving a lot of these ideas about how language influences thought. And their experiments are amazing. I mean, Russian speakers, for instance, who are obliged to distinguish between light blue and dark blue, you can't just call something blue in Russian. You have to say one or the other. Can actually distinguish between those shades perceptibly quicker than speakers of other languages. That's that's an example of an experiment that's been done. I think there are limits to how far you can go in saying language influences thought, but I believe it profoundly, both on an anecdotal, personal level um, and from the research that I did. One thing that's just interesting is we often sort of misinterpret that idea to mean okay, well, there are untranslatable words in each language. And and that must mean that, you know, if the classic example of this, although it's not a very good one because it's not true, (laughs) being Eskimos have 50 words for snow, but if Eskimos did have 50 words for snow, then that would influence their perception of the natural environment. It's not so much the words, because really when you think about it, there is nothing untranslatable. The reason that we're interested in those words is because they resonate with us. But linguists say it's not what you may do in a language, but it's that what, it's what you must do that can really have a long-term palpable effect on thinking. As you were going through all of this personally, and then as you say, sort of wanting to understand it more substantively, you know, as a writer, when did you latch upon the idea that the way to to tell the story was to in this combination of personal experience and you know, scientific overview? I think at the very, very beginning, I may have even thought that it should have been strictly a reported book. Um, and this is just, I mean, comes out of my background. I've worked at The New Yorker as a staff writer for well, how many years? Since I became a staff writer there in 2008 and started working there in 2003. And so I had never really dabbled in memoir. I mean, I'm a huge reader of memoir. I've always loved it. I'm a huge admirer and student of the genre. But, you know, I had just had drilled into my skull at The New Yorker, like, you don't write I. And if you do, you better really earn every single one of those. So it wasn't my natural inclination to write something personal. But that said, here I am in my personal life, just becoming totally obsessed by and immersed in French. And I'm eating and drinking and breathing and reading and sleeping and not yet dreaming, but um, I'm totally into French. And I think as a writer, anytime, you know, no matter how much you might think the spheres are going to remain separate. I mean, I thought, you know, this has nothing to do with my work. This is something I'm doing for love. In fact, I probably kind of wanted to keep on the down low the fact that I was like living in Switzerland and for professional reasons. But once something grabs a hold of your mind like that, I think as a writer, it just inevitably spills over into what you're doing professionally. And so the more I thought about it, I thought it incrementally just became clear to me that the story was so much richer if I explained why I cared about all this stuff, which was a very, very personal story. And I think it allows you to sort of push the story into interesting directions because you know, say for example, I'm not sure, although feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, like I'm not sure that you personally might have gone to the Academy review session. Right. At, on a personal level, were you not also already interested in the scientific aspect or the yeah. technical aspect? So what you're talking about is one moment in the book 
where I go to the Academy Francaise and attend a meeting of their committee, which it's the word factory. It's the committee that generates French alternatives to English words that are gaining purchase in the language. Um, no, I don't think as just a citizen I would have showed up there. That was kind of the one moment where I was able to put on my reporter's hat a little bit, and I loved it. I just thought it was so interesting because if my mission was to try to find out how English and French were different, what kind of essential qualities they brought to expression, I thought, what better a site to investigate that than this sort of laboratory where English words are being alchemized into French ones. Like, how will they be different? So that was, yeah, that was really, really fascinating for me. Yeah, talking about keeping the lines separate. You know, it's interesting. Now, you know, I had not thought about that until you mentioned it just now. But now I'm realizing it's like you don't really get a lot about like, you know, the sorts of stuff that during this whole period you were undoubtedly covering like all sorts of different stuff from the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I think there's like one anecdote about Donatella Versace at the very beginning. And that was like actually long before. Mm -hmm. That was years before. So Are you yeah, curious as to why I guess, that's not more in the book? Or? I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, like I say, it's an anomaly. I guess I didn't notice until uh, just now. I just, I, I want the stakes in learning French for me were so high, mm -hmm. and they were so personal. It really wasn't about whether I could write a story about Gerard Depardieu, which, which I did, in the interval that I was writing this book. It was about whether I was going to be able to hear my husband's voice. It was about whether I was going to be able to talk to my in-laws. It was about if we had a child, which we did actually <laughs> at the same time I was writing the book, whether I would be able to understand the homework that she brought home and talk to her friends and get us around town without, without causing some kind of catastrophe. So I just... It, it wasn't what the quest to learn French was about for me. It's been a wonderful kind of bonus. I mean, I've started reporting some stories in French, and that has opened up an entire new treasure trove of material for me professionally. But my desire to learn French, I mean, it wasn't a foreign correspondent thing. It was a need to have intimacy with this new family of mine thing. Intimacy, and, you know, there's a really wonderful part that I'm thinking of now where you talk about how at first it was it, it was kind of impossible for you to have fun in French because you just didn't understand it that well. Well, it was more like it was impossible for me to say that I was having fun mm -hmm. yeah. in French um, because there's not a good analog to the word fun in French, nor can you really say, you know, these are my fallbacks. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. I'm so excited. Excited has like a very, I mean, there are a couple of ways to say it, but it often has a very kind of physical or sexual charge in French. So, yeah, I was kind of like stripped of this vocabulary of effusion mm -hmm. that I was very reliant on yeah, another in one, English. Yeah, another one is like, I love it. You can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, love is, is very different in French. I mean, you have M.A., which means to love, and you have M.A. bien, which means to like. And when you first learn French, you stumble over that all the time. But you just don't say, I love things like, I love guacamole, was something I would say in English. And you don't say that in French. I mean, you can say j'adore, but love, the real literal translation, I find it to be much more in the romantic realm in French. I don't, you don't even really hear people saying like, I love you to their kids when they hang up on the telephone or something like that. And, and that was like a real source of 
confusion to me at first. There, I write about in the book how I said to one of Olivier's friends kind of offhandedly, oh, like, I love you. And I mean, he was just aghast. I think in English that's totally normal, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. In fact, love, I mean, maybe the tendency toward hyperbole or exaggeration is so typical yeah. in English that almost the more you hyperbolize, the less serious it is. Right. Yeah. Or even if it, even if you would feel weird necessarily saying straight up to somebody, I love you, you might have no problem saying to Olivier, for example, oh, I love this guy. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You just that that doesn't really fly in yeah. French in a way that it took me a while. Yeah. And it was funny, too, because, you know, sort of like the workaround that you came up with for a lot of this was like, oh, you know, this is the best pastry. Right. And people would be like, you haven't had all the pastries. Yeah, you don't, no, you don't like... know. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that formulation just... It falls flat in French. It's like people don't understand. They think you're being literal. Of course, you can express all these things if you really want to, but it doesn't work naturally in the language. And so that's one example of where I just find myself to be a very different person in a different language. I don't gush as much. I'm much more understated, and I'm trying to communicate the same emotions and perceptions, I guess, but I do it in a very different way that I think has a feedback loop. You know, and then the language goes back around and influences what I really think of things. You know, it's no longer that's the best cake in the world. It's that's a nice cake. Um, what other ways would you think that, you know, Lorraine is different from Lauren? You know, um, your, your French you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, there's so much that goes into this. I mean, obviously, it's not purely attributable to just linguistic differences. There's emotional baggage. There's situational context. I, strangely, I mean, you would think that someone in a second language might be kind of more timid or bumbling, retiring. I'm, I'm bumbling, but I have this sense of kind of authority in French that's come as a real surprise to me. I think that's partly because of the time in my life when I learned it. I mean, I've never, I've never, I have no childhood in French. I've always been a wife, a mother, and then part of it is just the sound and the feel of the language. I mean, for me to say something formidable or execrable, these, these kind of discriminating adjectives, I don't, that's not who I am in English. You know, in English, I'm kind of identifiably like a nice blonde chick from the South. In French, I have a little bit of freedom. I'm a little bit more um, disciplined, maybe, in a way. At first, I, I worried whether I would lose myself kind of thought, is it one or the other? But um, I've, I've come to just embrace the kind of possibilities and options that you have when you feel like a slightly different persona in another language. It's funny that you, you mentioned feeling more disciplined because I was thinking about how, like, towards the end, your immersion into French was so successful that when you come back to America, you're actually sort of, like, shaken by the, the informality of, uh, of American right, English again, right. all over again. Well, yeah, the, I mean, this is just such a simple thing, but even, like, the uh, to-vu distinction in French, the informal and the formal, you make that choice. You know, when you're processing that, when you're thinking 200 times a day, is this private or public? Is this person an acquaintance or an intimate? I think your mind starts to, you know, those are well-worn grooves at a certain point. And so, yeah, I, I spent a month in North Carolina last summer, this summer too. I mean, I love coming back to the U.S. And as I said, don't feel like I've 
abandoned my American self at all, but there are just moments where the kind of re-entry can be a little bit jarring. So yeah, anyway, I came back and I was like so excited about online delivery and how quickly you could get things and um, went a little bit overboard and I guess the credit card company put a block on my card. So I called and my baby was kind of screaming in the background. I said, sorry, I got a new baby. And the guy goes, well, that's great, ma'am. Is she going to be your first or your last? <laughs> and I just thought, you know, that was like to my French self, just shocking. And then I faced this problem of attribution. I was like, wait, did this guy really say something kind of weird asking me about my future like reproductive plans when I called <laughs> him to, to get a block off my credit card? Or have I changed? Am I, like, not properly attuned to just the regular kind of current of American mm -hmm. conversation now? Um, you know, and then we hung up and he said, much love to you and your family. And you tell me. I still, <laughs> do you think that's, like, do you think that's pretty standard? Or Well, I think the first one is a little weird. That, 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 yeah. You know, the, the question about, like, you know, oh, you're going to have more kids. I think, you know, that's kind of a little boundary. And it was <laughs> totally, like completely well-meaning i mean it wasn't it wasn't creepy it was just friendly yeah. and enthusiastic yeah but i mean to me it was still like this total you know being in this culture where you have extremely I mean, I formal you. Yeah, yeah yeah especially when like we call our neighbors madame and monsieur and it's <laughs> any interaction that takes place in the public arena is extremely formal and ritualized in france and in French, because of the the voo barrier. So anyway, yeah, that one hit me like a ton of bricks. But uh, so now you're you're in Paris. As the book shows, you're feeling very comfortable in your French self. Like, yeah, comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't know if very will ever okay. come. But so having one book under your belt now. I mean, well, I mean, you know, you write feature length stuff all the time. But still, a book is a significantly different kind of project. Absolutely. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I loved writing this. I mean, you're not you're never sure when you embark on your first book. And it's definitely not just like writing 10 articles. I mean, it's a totally different enterprise. I loved the freedom that I had in writing something. You know, I've come up in The New Yorker, and I love it, and I owe all of my training to The New Yorker. But it was just great to finally be able to, like, break some of the rules. So I really enjoyed that. I loved writing something personal, I have to say. I was, in the end, a much bigger narcissist than I had initially thought. No, it was a great experience. And now I've just finished the book tour, and it was totally thrilling to meet people who had read it. Yeah, I want to do another one. We just have to see what it's going to be. Definitely not, like, learning Italian next year. So. <laughs> Great. Well, in the meantime, there is When in French, Love in a Second Language. It's just out from Penguin Press. And I have been talking with Lauren Collins. And you've been listening to Life Stories. Now, if you liked the podcast, I hope you might go into iTunes, give it a couple of stars, give it a nice review. Those are the kinds of things that just make it a little bit easier for the next person to find it down the line. You can also subscribe through iTunes and find out whenever new episodes are launched. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for joining me today. Hope to see you again soon. Take care.